You're listening to Radically Agile, powered by Catalent. Tune in to hear thought leaders, operators, and visionaries share their expertise, lessons learned, and best practices for how to prepare for the rapidly changing world of work. Now, let's get Radically Agile. This week on Radically Agile, we'll be sharing an exclusive panel of speakers at Catalan's recent Reimagining Work Summit. This group, we're calling this group the Disruptors. They represent three different perspectives on reimagining industries. Many of you from large, mature enterprises told us that you wanted to hear today from companies organized in very different ways than yourselves. So please join me in welcoming Megan Joyce from Uber, Kate Gulliver from Wayfair, and Charlie Schilling from General Assembly, along with my Catalan teammate, Pat Griffin. Take it away, Pat. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. How are we doing? So uh, my goal, I'm Pat Griffin. I'm the VP for Enterprise here at Catalan. So I help large enterprises think through how they can be more agile, how they can adapt their programs and tech to solve some of the problems that, that are facing them. Um, my goal of this panel is to speak as little as possible because we have such uh, fantastic people here, and also to start a discussion so that you all uh, can get your questions answered and, and hear from these folks. So before they introduce themselves, I, I want to brag about them a little bit because I'm afraid that they won't uh, do it themselves. This is the disruptor panel, meaning that they saw a disruptive market opportunity, either a, a route to market, uh, unmet customer need, uh, and they're not just people that saw the strategy. Because as all of you sitting here, can probably think about the disruptive forces in your market, the market opportunities that somebody is gonna capture. These are the people that not only saw those opportunities and saw those strategies, but these are people that did it. Um, I remember five years ago, I had the wrong ride hailing app, and then I needed to download Uber. So what I'd like, because <laughs> somebody said, what are you doing, man, that's the wrong one. So what, um, what I want us to focus on today is not only like, as you're sitting here today, of course, you could hire a consulting firm, they could tell you, these are the disruptive forces. But you know, a lot of companies were on the starting line thinking about e-commerce, thinking about transportation, thinking about uh, uh, education, and for some reason, the organizations at General Assembly and Wayfair and Uber were able to ride the wave and react to the customer and, and, and capture the market opportunity, which is, I'm sure, what we all want to do. So that's the, that's the preface. We want to focus on how we get it done, not necessarily the strategy. And as a, a, by way of introduction, I'd love everyone here to just introduce themselves uh, a little bit about your organization and your role at the organization. And then one practical thing about the way your team works that you think has enabled you to capture the disruptive opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, number one, thanks for having me. <clears throat> My name is Charlie Schilling. I'm the general manager of the enterprise business at General Assembly. Uh, we exist for one reason, um, which is to help individuals and companies bridge the technology skills gap. Uh, we started in 2011 and have had 60,000 plus grads from our programs in areas like software engineering, data science, digital marketing, UX, UI, and product management. That's not by accident. That's because our corporate customers, who are ultimately the consumers of the talent we build, either on our campuses around the world or within the four walls of a company, 
tell us um, uh, are the biggest areas of um, skill gaps. Um, so that's kind of what we do. Um, the practical advice I'd, um, I'd sort of share, and this is a layup given that we're at a Catalan conference, is that uh, GA has on the order of 550 full-time employees, but now north of 5,000 subject matter experts with whom we work either to teach our classes, design our curricula, uh, and so forth. The reason we believe that's so important is that we want only practitioners to teach. We employ zero academics, um, and we think given the pace of technology change, that that is just so critically important. Um, and I was at the um, event last night, so I know many of you represent very large entities. There's just so much subject matter expertise that exists within the four walls of your company if you could only find it. Obviously, we want to be in the business of helping those people learn how to do things better and learn new things, um, but that's a very practical insight. Our scale wouldn't be possible without that um, network of expertise. Cool. Um, Kate Gulliver, I lead global talent for Wayfair. We sell furniture online. Uh, it's pretty simple, actually. Uh, complex to get a couch to you, but the idea is, is simple. Some of you may have ordered from us. I've probably noticed just how complex it is because it doesn't always go perfectly. Um, we are 10,000 uh, people globally. Um, primarily, our headquarters is in Boston, um, but we, are, we also operate in Germany and London. Um, and of our team of 10,000, about 5,000 of those are folks that are out in the field, so in call centers and warehouses, um, and about 5,000 are back in corporate. And I share that um, mix because I think often people think, we think of ourselves as a tech company, and I think often other large established enterprises, when they think of tech, they think, oh, that's only a certain profile of employee. But we have 5,000 frontline employees. I'm sure many of you have a similar footprint, if not quite a bit larger. Um, so we definitely have a sense of, of what that employee base is like. Um, I think there's many things that we do to maintain a spirit of innovation. I would say one of the most important is we have a deeply rooted cultural comfort with failure. And that is hard to create from scratch. So Pat asked for practical advice. I think that is difficult to start if you don't have it, but I do think you can begin to nurture it. And where that plays out is when we hire, we actually look for people that are comfortable with failure, that have failed, and that have taken a learning from that and pivoted. And we do that all the way from someone that is answering the phones in the call center to a shift supervisor in the warehouse to the person that is going to lead um, you know, part of the digital marketing. And I think that's really important because that is what maintains the speed. If you are comfortable with failure, then you will move quickly, you will put something out there, even if you know it's not 100% right. And ultimately in e-com, speed is everything, speed and, and logistics, frankly. Um, and so for us, maintaining that speed is actually critical to our success. Great. My name is Megan Joyce, and I'm Regional General Manager for Uber's US and Canada business. And um, not dissimilar from Wayfair, the idea is relatively simple behind Uber, tap a button, get a ride, or more recently, get a meal delivered to you, or, or um, logistics and delivery. Um, the execution has been a bit more complicated, as I am quite positive many of you have experienced. Um, but you know, I think over the last eight or nine years, um, we have survived only because we have been willing and able to disrupt ourselves over and over and over again. When I first started at Uber five and a half years ago, we only had a black car product, really. And a competitor was quickly coming onto the market with a lower cost, peer-to-peer um, -peer style product. And 
really introducing that product risk cannibalizing our big money maker and our, our most profitable pervasive product. And we were willing and able to roll it out faster, more effectively. Years later, we rolled out a car sharing product, again, at risk of cannibalizing our core product um, faster and more effectively. And even now have introduced food delivery, have been willing to dabble in autonomous vehicles, flying cars for the long term, things like bikes and scooters, all different sorts of products that really not only provide access to transportation, but build a platform that enable people to get what they need as quickly and easily as possible, irrespective of the mode of transportation or delivery. And I think what's been so critical to enabling that to happen is a real willingness to experiment and to take a lot of small risks in very time-gated and risk-gated ways and to see what sticks. Um, a lot of people don't realize that our first foray into food delivery was actually a, under the guise of a promo in Uber ice cream, where one day over the summer for many years, we put ice cream trucks on the platform and actually brought ice cream to people as a marketing event. And it did serve marketing purposes, but it had a deeper purpose, which was to understand what it took to deliver things on the platform, not just deliver people. And that was how we first dipped our toe into the water in, ter in terms of delivering things. And I think um, a, a willingness to carve out gated budgets, gated time periods, and to empower people to run hundreds and thousands of little experiments in that way have enabled our company to pivot really quickly, to try things that might feel risky or may seem threatening, and to do so in a way that really did minimize risk and uh, enable us to, to do a bit of proof of concept before really investing um, as an organization in any kind of full-scale way. Awesome. So three super practical tips around have an ecosystem around your business, hire people that know how to pivot and run a, a lot of small scale, uh, small scale experiments. I think the ability to, to can't risking cannibalizing your own business is something that is, that's where the really the rubber, the rubber meets the road. So I have a question about managing people, managing people in an environment like this where it's not stable. There's not a mature market with kind of predictable growth year over year. It sounds like, uh, so what do you want your man, what, what mindset do you want your managers to have when they're operating in such a, such a rapidly changing environment? I can start. Um, I, the word has to be agility. Uh, you know, our customers on the enterprise side will tell us, uh, you know, on one day they need A and the next day they need B and we need to be able to shape, shift to do that. I mean, if you go back to our genesis and why um, we think that our solution is better than the existing market, meaning what academic, excuse me, what academia sort of provides as an offshoot to the market is that we can change faster. If Google comes out with a new data science tool like TensorFlow, that needs to be in our curriculum the next day if we expect our graduates to be um, competitive in the market. And so that means that our managers have to be attuned to that and give their teams the freedom um, to go find that out for themselves. The manager's never going to have all the answers, nor can we expect them to have it. So that's my, um, I, that's the way we think about it. 
I think some of it comes down to um, your team structure. So we are highly, highly cross-functional in nature. It's actually, when I talk to recent hires about six months in that are at the senior level, and I ask them what their sort of biggest surprise in is, it's actually the degree to which um, we are matrixed. Um, it is to the extent that not a single person in the company owns a P&L top to bottom until you get to Neeraj Shah, our CEO and co-founder. Right, that's pretty crazy on six billion of sales and, and 10,000 people. But the benefit to that is A, you have to be incredibly transparent because if you're working in a matrix org and you only own a chunk of that P&L, you have got to share out what you're doing because everybody else won't work effectively with you. It also means that if what you're doing isn't working, that's okay, you can share that with people and they can step in and help you solve that problem from another angle. Or it might be that if we were going down one path and that path isn't working, you actually would shut down your project and move on to another project. And that um, fluidity both in the workforce and the forcing of the transparency through the matrix structure, I think allows you to both pivot quickly and be agile, as you said, which is sort of the core inherent mindset that we want. I think for us, it's been all about culture. And we've had our cultural challenges and a number of kind of shifting values over the last um, eight or nine years. But two of our cultural values that have remained consistent through our, the entirety of our existence are, one, um, we all act like owners of this company. And two, we value ideas over hierarchy. So great ideas can come from the CEO, but they can also come from our frontline staff or our interns or, or drivers or customers. And I think the combination of those two values that every single one of us is acting like the owner of the company or an owner of the company and great ideas can come from anywhere has been incredibly powerful for us because it means that each and every one of us comes to work every day looking for ways to make the company better. And we are willing to put the company first before our own individual interests or our own product or our own you know, team or business line, even if it means disrupting or cannibalizing what we come to work and do every day. And we are willing to give great ideas a shot no matter where they come from. So a small experiment that came from a frontline team or that came from another market has as much legitimacy as an idea from your own team. And the idea that those great ideas can crop up from anywhere and that all of us are expected to put company first and act like owners and think about the long term ahead of our short term personal interests has enabled us to um, culturally pivot so much faster than an organization that is kind of stuck in its own personal interests or its own business lines, um, uh, long-term or short-term benefit. Um, and those cultural values have been key to enabling that to happen. Great. So you, a lot of you have touched on experiments and getting good ideas and things getting traction. And we have a lot of we have a lot of companies represented here that have global scale and that do things in a in a big way and move markets and, and as you all have too. So, talk to me a little bit about that scaling process. So you've hit on an idea. You're very close to your customer, and now it's time to to go all in and build an organization around it. How do you how do you go and capture that opportunity without building a hierarchical organization. And, and uh, Kate, let's start with you, because in the Boston market, for those of you that aren't from around here, Wayfair is like a magnet 
uh, for top talent. If you're in the New England market and you haven't had people go to Wayfair, then you, I don't know. That, that, that could be a bad sign. But um, we're not getting but, enough from Catalan, so right. if anybody wants to come. <laughs> right. Okay. Sorry, Rob. Um, so uh, the... Um, but you, you've been able to add people to the team and, and run after the opportunities that are there. Tell, tell us, how does that so work? So I think, um, I think it's, and thank you for the pitch. Um, I, think it's, I think it's a fewfold. So one, it's interesting, Charlie, you mentioned talking about hiring subject matter experts. And certainly for our engineers and our data scientists, we want people with those skills, and we actually hire some from, from General Assembly. Um, and... For, I always tell people our general counsel is legitimately an attorney. He has passed the Massachusetts bar. But most of our other roles, we actually don't look for subject matter experts. Um, so I have never worked in talent until I was actually a private equity investor. Um, and before that, I was a consultant. Um, we are very comfortable putting people in roles that they have never done before. Our marketing people mostly came out of consulting. Um, our, you know, the, the people that are running actually large chunks of our finance team don't have formal finance training, right? That is, would be kind of terrifying, um, I think, to some people. But for us, we feel like those people bring new ideas. It also allows us to move people around very easily internally. So getting to your question of, well, how do you start something up and how do you staff that? And then if it's going to scale, how do you bring it to scale? Often our ideas, our new ideas, are actually started by existing team members. So for example, a few years ago, we launched a business called Castlegate, which is a third-party logistics business within Wayfair. All e-com ultimately becomes a, a logistics company. Um, and this was the start of how we might provide that to our suppliers. Castlegate um, was originally founded by a long-term uh, Wayfair employee. He was deeply schooled in the Wayfair DNA and culture, and I think that's very important for when you're starting a new initiative to make sure that initiative is sort of part of your broader cultural norms. Um, we originally staffed up that team with support actually from other adjacent organizations in the company that were doing similar work. So it allowed us to be flexible with how we built that team in case the idea didn't take off. So if that idea didn't work, we were actually gonna be able to put those people back out into their, into their old job or into a new job in the company but into different business units, it didn't really matter that those people had never worked in third-party logistics before. Um, that idea did end up taking off. It's actually in a, in quite a large team now. And we've staffed that team with a mix of folks um, that are you know, new people that we brought into the company and existing people that have wanted to move into that, that area. And that has allowed us to scale much faster because we're not trying to train up an entirely new team. Similarly in talent, um, many of us don't have talent experience. There are some with deep-rooted talent experience. But the team is very much, at the leadership level, a mix of um, people, sort of generalists, general managers from out in the broader Boston or, or US market, um, talent experts, and then Wayfarians who we've moved over into those roles. And we think that knowledge transfer is absolutely critical to our success and to sort of rapidly scaling different businesses. Yeah, for us, it's been critically important to empower and enable a, a highly decentralized model, especially in the early years as we were scaling, and, and scaling not only across US and Canada, but also globally. Um, an idea that our founder and CEO had very early on was that you can create, once you've proven the business model and, and have one market where you show the unit economics work, create a playbook for that, and then empower some general managers who can go into various markets, enact that playbook, and problem solve where it's not working. And that was our system. That was our org structure for many, many years. Um, and it meant that we had 
really empowered people who were told you are the CEO of your market. Here's the rough playbook, so don't reinvent the wheel where you don't have to, but you will come across idiosyncratic challenges based on the various dynamics of your particular market. And it's up to you to problem solve when you encounter those challenges. And it meant that we did have a standard operating procedure that teams were expected to follow for the purposes of efficiency and, and efficacy, but that teams were also encouraged to find um, customized solutions where they had to, and that they didn't have to ask for a terrible amount of permission within the bounds of reasonable problem solving um, where they encountered challenges. And it was a much different tack than many global organizations were taking at the time. Frankly, it was much different than what a lot of our competitors were doing with a highly centralized model. But it meant that we could problem solve and adapt very quickly, scale globally faster than anyone, and um, get our foothold around the world faster than many other organizations before us and certainly anyone else in the market. And over time, we have certainly centralized more. There are certain solutions that we've needed to roll out globally. Um, our recent set of safety initiatives, for example, those are things that we don't want to compromise on, and we have had to develop centralized solutions for them. But particularly when we were scaling, it was absolutely essential to have a decentralized model where we were empowering people in the field to problem solve accordingly and to support them as they did. Great. I think what I'd add to that is we, we actually have sort of a backwards looking approach to the scale problem in that in general our recommendation to companies is not that you need more data or not necessarily that you need more people but you need to get more out of the existing assets you already have and that we can accomplish a lot to that end by changing the mindset of individuals on individual teams. I'll give you an example. So we do a lot of work with um, a Fortune 50 industrial company. Um, who would tell you they are awash in project managers but need more product managers. And so we can borrow concepts like customer centricity from UX UI, take that to a new place in an organization and empirically prove that that organization will get more projects, um, or excuse me, products through their various stage gate processes, therefore increasing their velocity and um, you know, improving their chances of success. That's digital mindset shift that in part has to start at the top of an organization. Um, but for many of the players in this room, your problem isn't scale. You have global scale. So how do you actually take advantage of it in new ways, I think, really is the, the key question. Great. So we're empowering our people with General Assembly. We're upskilling them, reskilling them. We're, we're being agile and adapting uh, the market. So we've got a great group here. I'm curious what questions are in the audience for them. Sensing a lot of questions. Three of the most disruptive businesses uh, uh, in, the, in the country on the stage. What are you guys wondering about? Yes, sir. So a question for Kate. The interview process as you're trying to find people who are comfortable failing in the past. What interview questions do you go to to be able to figure that out? Yeah. So. Great question. Um, most data suggests that uh, we're actually all bad interviewers, right? Any of the empirical data is human beings are not good at this. Um, so what we've tried to do is, um, for the, entire of the in entirety of the interview process for non-tech roles, remove as much individual decision making as possible from it. 
we have um, four in competencies that we interview on. These are the same four competencies that you are evaluated on throughout your career at Wayfair. Um, they are sort of intrinsic characteristics that we think of are, are important. One of them um, is critical thinking, which we generally test through a case that's typically getting at quant and logic and data, sort of data analytic skills. Um, one of them is innovation. And we test through that by behavioral interviewing. It's a you know, very well-established practice of interviewing. Many of you probably do that um, in your companies. And we actually ask people to give us examples of when they started something or when they tried something and it didn't work and how they pivoted from it. And we will ask repeatedly for those examples, which is how you typically uncover um, if someone is sort of creating a great story for the first example. It's kind of hard to do that over and over and over again if that's not consistent and true. Um, we actually train all of our, we now train, this is, I say this like this has been the established practice since 2002 when the company was started. This is all rapidly evolving in the last few years. But we, so, so you can put in place this when you don't have it. Um, we have been training most of our employees to go through very in-depth behavioral interview training before they actually can become an interviewer because the default we found is for people to just go back to a resume walk. And we already know, we know the resumes are good. We're screening those resumes before they come in. So the behavioral interview questions are, are actually really critical. So I should have asked, can you guys just share your name and where you're from when you, when you ask a question? Sure, so I'm Mike Glass. I run uh, talent at uh, Thermo Fisher Science. Thanks, Mike. Okay, next question. Hi, I'm Mitha from Bose. Um, a question for you, Megan. Um, so you say you do a lot of pivoting of projects. You do these kind of micro programs. What's the process within your company to, to kill a program, right? Mm. Like there's so many of them, and if you've got a stakeholder who's like, I really want to push this through, like, how do you guys deal with that? Yeah, it's a great question, and certainly evolved over time as we as an organization have become more mature and, and have increasing levels of accountability and, and different priorities, right? And so um, I think a, a few things have been critical. Even since the early days, it has been essential to, number one, define success before you start the experiment. It is so easy when you're weeks into an experiment to subconsciously tweak the definition of success based on the results that you're seeing because everybody wants their project to succeed, right? And you can usually find some value in the project itself. But we need to be really clear-eyed about what we are trying to achieve um, before we go out and do it. And one asterisk that is super important is can you measure that definition of success before you start the experiment? I can't tell you how many times in the early days we said this is the definition of success and launched our experiment only to find that like we weren't actually tracking the metric that we were trying to measure or we had different definitions of the metric we were trying to measure. So define that upfront in a universal way. Everyone can agree, here's the dashboard, here's how we're gonna calculate, here's how we're gonna measure. And here's the time frame in which we need to see that success. That last part is so important because again, it's so easy to let it drag out and say, let's see another week, let's see another month of data. But we need to be pretty disciplined about the time frame in which we want to see that successful set of results. And if you define that up front and frankly write it down, have it in a place that's accessible to everyone in the brief before you lay out the experiment or in kind of a shared document, write it on the wall if you have to. Um, here's the definition of success, here's the metric we're going to be watching, where we're going to track it, and in the time frame in which we're going to evaluate results. And then you can 
have that accountability with, without dispute, right? To revisit those results within that time period. Everyone gathers around the table within that predefined time and says, all right, here's the dashboard we're gonna be looking at. Here was the result we were aiming to see. Are we there or not? And then it depersonalizes it. Then it forces a bit of accountability in that time frame. Um, over time, we have gotten more deliberate around carving out budgets or staff or divisions in which to incubate experiments. Um, so in the last several years, we, we set up incubation teams that are designed to house major product investments. Uber Eats was its own um, ring-fenced experiment. Autonomous vehicles, it's its own ring-fenced division of engineers so that those major bets have um, dedicated resourcing and time. But the principle is the same. Here are the results we need to see within this time frame. Here's how we're gonna measure it so that we can hold ourselves accountable to, to, to shutting things down, as you say, when they don't work, or to reinvesting when we really do see some green sprouts. Thank you. Next question. Hi, good morning. Kevin Shigley with the Coca-Cola Company. Uh, my question is kind of similar, um, and maybe a build. How do you deploy resources against the, the work? Yeah, I'm happy to start, and then I'm sure you guys have, um, have similar uh, reactions. But I, I think, um, similar to what Kate was describing earlier, um, having a culture and a talent staffing approach that sets the expectation that folks may be staffed on something for a period of time and it's part of our culture and our norms to lend resources to experiments has been really helpful for us um, because it means that um, you can take resources in a really lightweight way um, put people on something for a dedicated period of time and reintegrate them back into their original team if and when we do need to shut something down or we need to pivot priorities. And it means that we probably have a bit more buffer in our staffing model than the average company, which is super leanly staffed. Um, but we have found that that's really effective, um, not only to enable us to staff experiments, but also to keep people energized as in the workforce, and I know this is a huge part of what Catalan focuses on and enables in organizations, but you know, we find especially with like the millennial workforce and talent, this kind of talent market where people could be working anywhere, it's highly competitive, keeping folks engaged and, and working on new exciting challenges. A couple times a year you get to peel off your normal uh, course of business and work on a special project for some period of time is incredibly helpful for retention and engagement purposes, and so we find that that extra bit of buffer in our staffing model is well worth it, not only to enable strategic investments, but also from a, from a talent engagement perspective. Yeah, I think I can add to that, which is to say that um, we meaningfully and positively changed the inflection of our growth curve when we realized that we were actually a professional services business mm -hmm. rather than a company masquerading as a SaaS business, and that has allowed us um, to focus on where we see the biggest area of client opportunities, and to your point, keep the work really interesting for people that are a challenge to retain. These are super smart millennials in fields like software engineering. Like there are lots of companies in the world that want those people. If you can keep it interesting, um, they'll stay. Also, and we're clearly, I say this humbly, um, you know, sitting on a panel with Wayfair and Uber, but our game is a logistics game. 
the reason that we're able to execute in now north of 400 individual cities across the globe on behalf of really big companies is because we figured out something in the ecosystem and the quality of delivery that doesn't just exist in you know, San Francisco, California, or New York City, New York. It needs to exist in lots of strange places wherever our clients will take us. So it's not one thing, it's the ecosystem of how that all works together. The, the only thing I, I agree with all of this, and in addition to retaining employees, it, to us it actually helps us attract employees to say, hey, you can come in and run this. And I always tell people the only thing I can, can guarantee you is that in a year you'll probably be doing something different. And there's a certain profile of individuals who are people that are typically comfortable with failure who actually get excited by that and, and they like that. The, the one other point I would add um, is we actually don't operate with a formal budget. Um, which was, we're a publicly traded company, so, and my first job was actually running the IPO, so that was terrifying. I, I was like, I'm gonna go tell Wall Street that we're gonna do X, and we're not gonna do X, like, this is gonna be a disaster. Amazingly, it works, um, and four and a half years in, like, we're still, that four and a half years into my tenure at the company, we're still doing that. Um, and I actually think that really helps with this idea of how do you staff up new initiatives, because no one says, oh, well, I'm getting, I'm getting bonus on if I hit this quarterly number that I committed to a year ago, which may no longer be relevant. Um, and so for us, because we're all, because we're highly matrix, as I mentioned, because everyone owns different pieces of the P&L, we're quite comfortable internally moving people around because it doesn't negatively impact the person that is net giving the people to move over. Because that's a decision that we're all making as a company that we want to move people from A to B, and that's fine. Everyone, if that works out, the company's going to work out and we're all going to do well as a result of that. But it's not my little fiefdom is being impacted. Um, and that was, to me, actually a very different way of thinking than companies that I'd worked with before. Um, and sometimes it still gives me a little panic that we don't have a budget, but it's, it actually has, has worked to our, our benefit for sure. So I think we have time for two more questions, and there's one here. Hi, uh, Shilpi Niyogi from Pearson, and I have a question that, it's one question, but kind of with two filters on it. One is, you all talked about logistics, and if you could unpack a little bit more about um, what that really looks like and how you figure that out. and. Related to that, I'm going to steal a question Bob asked yesterday, but if you can talk a little bit more about the messy middle in your companies. There's sort of a how you got started and where you are today, but the messy middle and the logistics, I have a feeling, are tied together. So if you could just unpack a little more of that. Um, I, I'm happy to jump in first, because um, I think we all, we all are logistics oriented, but very different types of, of logistics. Um, so uh, Wafer was founded in 2002. Um, when I started at the company in 2014, um, I left Bank Capital to go to the company. I think people probably thought I was crazy. No one had really heard of it yet in Boston. Um, we rebranded uh, in 2011 from CSN stores to Wayfair. And from 2002 to 2011, the company was actually bootstrapped by the co-founders. Um, I didn't share this at the beginning because we were talking about practical, practical points. You can't go back and redo your capital structures, but the fact that our co-founders we're able to bootstrap the company for that long, that it's a negative working capital cycle, that they still have majority voting shares, so we have a very limited corporate governance structure for a public company, is certainly a competitive advantage, right? And certainly helps with innovation, because we can move very quickly. I don't have to do a massive board presentation every time I want to change something. Um, so that said, for the first, um, really, 10 years of the company, growth was slow and steady. 
when they took on outside capital in 2011, that is when um, the growth really accelerated and they started investing significantly in digital marketing. So the first decade was really about establishing um, the product market fit, um, building up that front end storefront and establishing you know, who our customer was and trying to understand that customer. The next um, about four years, so let's say from 2011 to about 2015, 2016, was all about building the marketing engine and getting our brand out there. That's probably when most of you started to find out who Wayfair was. That's when we started national advertising on TV um, and we invested hundreds of millions of dollars in brand building at that point because we had outside capital. We IPO'd in 14 um, and we took in about $300 million in that which, which we helped invest back into the business. Um, in 2016 is when we started really investing in the logistics space. So I share all of that because it's not as if in 2002, Neeraj and Steve, the co-founders, sat there and said, oh, we're gonna be, we're gonna be a trucking company like in 2018, definitely not. Um, and actually a significant portion of our business is now invested in moving goods across the country. And frankly, we're, we're actually, um, we've shared that we're now going into Asia and moving goods from Asia directly to the US. Um, and I don't think they could have foreseen that, but as we got scale, we knew that if our end goal is to serve the customer better, one of the most frustrating things about home, um, home delivery of furniture is you go to order a couch, they'll tell you, oh, it'll be three, for room and board, it's like it's three or four months till you get that. Nobody wants that. So the more, the faster we could bring that to the customer, the more customer, the more cleanly we could bring that to the customer, the better off we'd be. We couldn't even get there though until we had the scale to make economic sense to own that part of the logistics infrastructure. So talk about the messy middle, I would say, A, we're somewhat in the messy middle still, but there was, and we probably will be forever, but there was certainly a long period in there where we, the company itself was doing well, but was not a, not a brand name. Um, you know, the, the ultimate vision wasn't clear, and I'm sure five years from now, we'll look quite different than we look today. Thank you. I think we have our last question here. Hi, good morning. Uh, Maury Herod with Owens, Illinois. Um, we're here uh, kind of on a disruption theme, and it got me thinking, how do you respond when disruption happens to you? And I'll, I'll primarily put this one to Megan, but uh, you know, Charlie or Kate, feel free to jump in. Uh, looking at Uber over the past 18 months, it seems like you guys have had some disruption that has come, and you guys have responded well. Uh, safety, obviously, the, the implementation of your TIP program, your drivers working with your competitor, uh, and just it, it feels like as a very heavy user of your product, you guys have responded exceptionally well and just keep your agenda gets moving very quickly. It, it feels like on safety, you almost turned it to a positive. Could you talk a little bit about how does your company deal with rapidly responding to disruption? Yes, and I first want to thank you so much, not only for your business, but also for the kind words. I wish I could say that we responded and pivoted and were as effective as I wish we were every time. Um, you know, I think it comes down to a couple things, to the extent that we have been successful in pivoting quickly and responding to disruption. One is um, the best strategy in the world, we found, only gets you so far, um, because a competitor can copy that pretty quickly. For us, over and over again, success has been about executing faster and better than anyone else in the market. And that gets increasingly difficult when you are the large player in the space, because you do have increasing investor expectations and, and budgetary needs and things like that. And so I think um, for us, continuing to, to prioritize 
excellent, speedy execution has been absolutely critical. And um, it means that there are going to there's going to be some messiness along the way. And I was you know I was chuckling to myself thinking like we are we are absolutely still in the messy middle. We've probably been in the messy middle since the day we started, and will be for a while. Um, and that means accepting some some messiness internally. It means we're not going to have perfect budgets or perfect staffing models, and we're going to make some blunders along the way. And frankly, we're going to be a bit spiky in what we prioritize because our company is going to run after one thing really hard for a long time. I think it's well known this is what got us into trouble. We, we In 2017, we ran after growth almost single-mindedly for a really long time. And then we realized that that meant we had deprioritized some other things like you know customer obsession and delivering on our, our promise of you know, reliability and safety as consistently as we wanted to. And so we have shifted our priority to that and, um, and have poured an enormous amount of resources into making sure that we are executing as swiftly and effectively on those priorities as we had on growth for so long. Um, and so I think it really speaks to, for us, the value of excellent execution, almost more so than having the perfect strategy every time. Yeah, I mean, I'd add, actually, in a way, we've been um, disrupted by my friend on this stage, uh, which is, uh, as companies scale, they inevitably turn to um, their own learning organizations to help develop talent. We're in that business, so clearly we'd like to partner in those ways. We were successful out of the gate with Wayfair with other companies, um, and then have definitely seen a trend where companies will try to go do this themselves. And so that's caused us to rethink how we approach the market, meaning not necessarily that we need to be the only provider across the entire value chain, but really focus on where we feel like we can make the difference. And so I actually like what Jim said last night. You're only in business if you have a better product or charge less. We want to be in the better product business uh, and focus in a limited number of areas where we think we can do that. And so you've always got to be listening. I think that's so key, especially, I love that you guys think you're going to the middle. We would love to be in your middle. <laughs> um, but uh, I think that ability to, to interact with your clients in a way that isn't sort of a one or zero binary outcome, but that you can bob and weave along with your clients is so important. Thank you, Megan, Kate, Charlie, and Pat. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Radically Agile, powered by Catalan, the go-to podcast for interpreting the dramatic changes underway in the world of work. Please visit agileworkforce.com or email us at radical at gocatalan.com to join the conversation.